0: Well, good morning, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12 is what we're going to be reading this morning. We've already had just a blessing of a morning service, seeing believers testify to what God has done in their hearts. And if you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, you just saw it displayed through those testimonies and baptisms of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians aren't called to display or put on display their own works or morality We're called to display Jesus and what he did for us. We, in and of ourselves, are very unimpressive and sinful people. But Jesus rescued us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, offered us forgiveness through his death, burial, and resurrection. And now we walk in newness of life. So we, as Christians, we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Jesus. And especially if you're visiting with us this morning, we want you to see Jesus. We want you to see Jesus like we've seen him. And as a congregation, we've been going through the book of Mark, Verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter. And our passage today just so happens to display Jesus in the good news of the gospel. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today, reading the first 12 verses. As we saw last week, this section in Mark pits Jesus against the religious leaders. Last week, we see the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, confronting Jesus with the question about the source of his authority. And Jesus very cleverly answers that question with a question. And as a result, the religious leaders are compelled, almost forced, to discredit themselves. And in chapter 12, it's going to be question after question, conversation after conversation, holding up the authority of Jesus over and above the authority of these religious leaders. But in our passage today, it's not a conversation with the religious leaders, It's a story. It's a story that Jesus tells, a parable, about these religious leaders. Now, many of Jesus' parables were shrouded to the eyes of the Pharisees. And it was intentionally so, that Jesus spoke in parables so that those who had ears to hear would hear the truth, and those who had blind eyes and hardened hearts would not hear. But this particular parable was not that way. This particular parable was clear, not just to his disciples, but to the religious leaders that were standing in front of him. The imagery and characters that Jesus uses in this story is meant to be obvious and clear because even those with stubborn and rebellious hearts like these leaders were able to understand what he is saying. We're going to read the parable, Mark chapter 12, verse 1, going down through verse 12. Read with me. And he began to speak unto them by parables, them as the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant, that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty." And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully handled. Then again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went on their way. Let's pray and ask God to guide us through this passage together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for this parable that shows not only your goodness and patience toward us, but at the depths of our sin, and most importantly, the death of your Son. I pray that the gospel would be magnified this morning, that the truth of your word would be set forth, that those who have ears to hear will hear the gospel and believe. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Today, in in Mark 12, Jesus tells, I guess you could say, a a, a murder mystery. A murder in the garden. This is not a happy story. This is not an uplifting story. This is definitely not a Hallmark movie. This is a very dark story. And we're going to see that this is very clear. as, as, As Jesus sets forth this story to the religious leaders, they understand everything that he's saying. As we see at the last verse verse 12 they understood that they were talk, he was talking about them. So before we consider the application and the meaning of the story for us today, let's understand the story. Let's let's see this story with the same level of clarity as the religious leaders had. Why were these religious leaders seeking to arrest Jesus? It's because they realized that Jesus was depicting them not as the master of the vineyard or the servants of the master or the son, but as the wicked, murderous tenants. And the other images were very clear to them as well. Each component of this parable, from the vineyard to the master, to the tenants, to the servants, they all have a direct connection to something that these religious leaders understood very well. First of all, the vineyard. When Jesus says that there a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for it and built a tower around it, the religious leaders immediately understood the connection that Jesus was trying to make. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was described by God as a vineyard. These are students of the Old Testament. Specifically, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Verses 1 through 4, where God describes his people as a vineyard. And I want you to notice the very similar language between Mark 12 and Isaiah 5. God says this, Let me sing for my beloved, my, song, my love song, concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Almost identical language and picture as Mark chapter 12. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So when these religious leaders hear the word vineyard and hear the description very similar to the book of Isaiah, they know this vineyard is meant to describe Israel, God's people, And if the vineyard is is God's people, then the owner of the vineyard is very clearly God. What about the tenants, the husbandmen? As we've already seen, they knew exactly who they were in this story. Jesus was painting these religious leaders, these religious leaders with great authority, as these wicked, murderous tenants. This position of great privilege and opportunity that the religious leaders have. But what about the servants? Who are the servants that, Jesus, or that, that the master is sending to the vineyard time and time again? What dots would the religious leaders connect in that aspect of the story? We see that when season came, the master sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And so let's ask the question In the nation of Israel, who were the representatives sent from God for a specific task to the people? The prophets. The message of the prophets was God's appointed way to communicate his will to his people. We read in Amos 3 7 For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And so we see a visual representation of the nation of Israel, the religious leaders, and the prophets sent by God. And the Sanhedrin saw this and understood all these things. So He understood that Jesus was talking about them. It's very clear. This is not hidden. If we were to summarize this story in one sentence, we could say the master sends servants to the vineyard who are mistreated and even killed by the tenants. And we take those pictures and we apply them to what what it's meaning. We could say God sends prophets to Israel who are mistreated and even killed and thrown out of the vineyard. This is exactly what's going on in this story. And as a last result, the master sends his own son who is also killed and thrown out of the vineyard. And Jesus is sharing the story with the leaders to reveal their sin in their own hearts. They have rejected God's message in the past. And they were about to reject and kill the very Son of God. And so, while this passage describes a murder in the garden, we see in the story the very message of salvation. We see the goodness of God in the story. We see the rebellion of humanity in the story. And most importantly, we see the death of the Son in the story. We see Jesus confront the religious leaders and showing them again that he knows full well their intention and their plan. He knows that these religious leaders are about to kill him. They are going to reject him and arrest him. And so how does this story confront you? We're going to see a very clear invitation, a moment of decision near the end of this passage. And so I ask you now, at the beginning of this message, have you placed your faith and hope in Jesus alone? Or will you, like the religious leaders in this story, reject him and his message? There are four themes that we see in this parable today. And first of all, and I think very clearly, we see the goodness of God. When applied to an actual master in a real vineyard, the actions of the master don't make much sense, right? Why keep on sending servants when they keep on getting beaten and killed? Let alone, why send your own son when you know that the tenants are wicked? Well, What may be illogical for an owner of a vineyard It is loving and gracious for a God toward his people. Because remember, the vineyard depicts the nation of Israel, a group of people whom God loved. Do you see the goodness of God in this story? Well, let me ask this question. Have you seen the goodness of God in your life? Whether you believe in God or not, whether you profess faith in God or not, have you seen his goodness? In our passage today, we see his goodness through his gracious gifts. Consider the care that this man shows in planting his vineyard. He put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. We see the similar language to Isaiah 5, verse 2, where he cleared out the stones, and he planted the vines, and he built a watchtower. And he set up Israel and everything it needed to produce fruit, and God gave them every advantage, and yet they turned their backs on God. And we see in Isaiah, he asked the question, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? What more has God done for you? Matthew 5, verse 45 says, For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That even in this world of sin and death and suffering, you can see the good gifts of God all around you. He has blessed you with life. He has blessed you with breath in your lungs, food to eat, clothes to wear, family, friends, Acts 17, verse 25 says, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The sun that He made rises on the good and evil alike. He gives rain to everyone, regardless of whether they're just or unjust. He brought you here this morning. God is so good. He has blessed you with so many things. We see the goodness of God through His gracious gifts. But we see also the goodness of God through His patient warnings. The owner of the vineyard sends his servants in verse 2, but the tenants abuse him. They took him and beat him and send him away empty-handed in verse 2. But what does the the owner do? He sends another servant who is struck and shamefully treated. And so what does he do next? He sends another servant who is killed this time, but he keeps trying. Verse 5 says, And so with many others. He kept sending them and sending them and sending them, and some they beat and some they killed. Again, this doesn't make much sense for a vineyard owner. owner. But through the lens of a faithful God to the people he loves, it makes all the sense in the world. God sent prophet after prophet to his people. Look at what he says in Jeremiah 7, verse 25 to 26. For from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or inclined their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Why would God be so patient, so loving? I'll tell you why. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. How do we see God's goodness? He is patiently waiting for you to know Him. And while we're consumed with our own lives and our own sin, Jesus patiently sends us warning after warning. You even see here that you're here this morning because God is so patient with you. He wants you to believe in Him and Him alone. You and I are sinners. We don't deserve these gifts. We don't deserve the rain that falls from the sky. We don't deserve the sun to rise on each day. We've broken his commandments. We've ignored his rule over our life, and yet he is kind and patient to us when all we deserve is his wrath. We see his goodness through his kind gifts and his patient warnings. Have you responded with repentance and faith? Or as in the words of Romans chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the goodness and kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God has been so good to you. You have seen his goodness through his gracious gifts. You have seen his goodness through his patient warnings to you. Time and time again, how has he warned you? How has he brought to you the message of the gospel? What chances have you had to place your faith in Christ? Yet instead of repenting, we rebel even more. And so we see also in this parable the rebellion of man. The sinfulness of the religious leaders. And all of humanity is seen in the wicked and evil responses of these tenants to the servants that were sent. And this part of the story refers to the persecution that the prophets of the Old Testament received at the hands of the leaders of Israel. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus laments over Israel's treatments of God's servants through the generations, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing? But couldn't the religious leaders claim innocence regarding the Old Testament prophets? After all, they weren't there. They didn't do the deed. Their ancestors were the ones who committed these crimes. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 29 through 36 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! So while these religious leaders washed their hands clean of the sin of their forefathers, they ignored the fact they had the same evil heart as their fathers, and they would continue to do the same things. They would fill up the measure of their fathers. And Jesus tells them, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to do exactly what your forefathers did. You are no different. They may not have killed the servants of the vineyard owner, but they were about to kill the son of the vineyard owner. Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 52, Peter says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. These religious leaders could not sit back and pat their own shoulders and say, we wouldn't have done the same thing because they were about to do the same thing. And you and I are no different. We cannot look at these religious leaders. We cannot look at the Old Testament leaders and say, I would have done completely different. We're sinners too. We rebel against God. We rebel against the authority of God. These tenants had the nerve to disrespect and rebel against the very person who hired them. The owner's authority over them meant nothing. If you're an employer, you would never tolerate your employees treating you this way. If you're a parent, you would never tolerate your kids acting this way. God is the creator of the entire universe. Should he tolerate such rebellion? And what is that rebellion? Well, what did the tenants want? They wanted to take over. They heard that the owner was sending his son, and so they conspire and say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. What about us today? Well, the Bible says God is the king of kings. He's the creator of all things. And we as sinful people, you know what I try to do? I try to dethrone him. And I try to put myself on that throne. I want complete and total power over my life. I disregard the authority of God. I ignore His rules. I break His commandments. We ignore the God of the universe and try to become our own little gods. We rebel against the authority of God, but we rebel also against the message of God. We don't care about His authority over us, and we don't care about His message to us. Have you been presented with the truth of the gospel before? And have you responded, well, that's not for me. Not interested. Or perhaps even complete ridicule and mockery. Perhaps you've done that to someone's face. Or perhaps you've only done it in the quietness of your own heart when your own conscience pricks you of your sin and your own conscience reminds you of the reality of God and your accountability to Him. And you shake off that nagging feeling that there is a God out there who has a message for you. We are sinners because we reject that message. And in its place, we form our own message. We we form our own way of life. We march to the beat of our own drum. We are rebels against God. We as his creatures, his creation, have seeking to to, to break off the authority of God. Just like these religious leaders did. But we see not only the goodness of God, not only the rebellious of man, but we see the death of the Son. Verses 6-8 through eight says this, the owner of the vineyard, he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent to him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. In these verses, Jesus foreshadows exactly what these religious leaders were about to do. In just a few short chapters, they would arrest and crucify Jesus, the very Son of God, And in this death, we see a combination of the first two points we've already looked at. Both the goodness of God and the rebellion of man combined into the tragic yet planned death of Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus into his vineyard, his beloved son, whom knowing full well that he would be rejected and killed. But he sent him because it was the only way to free you and me from our rebellion and allow us to experience the goodness of God. The death of the son was a horrible crime. The tenant sees this opportunity to kill the son and shamefully throw him out of the vineyard, not even giving him a proper burial. And Jesus describes a horrible, brutal, and shameful crime. And these religious leaders were about to do the same thing to Jesus. They knew that they were t- he was talking about them. And even in light of that, they sought to arrest him. Fulfilling Jesus' prediction. Verse 9 describes the consequences of this crime. Verse 9 What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. There is no greater crime committed than the murder of the Son of God, and yet we see that the death of the Son was the gracious gift. Look with me in verses 10 and 11. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here Jesus quoted Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. We find something fascinating in this parable. The very act of them committing this horrible crime, God was accomplishing His plan of salvation for all people. The stone rejected by the builders... Had become the very cornerstone. And this is all the Lord's doing. What is the good news? What is the gospel? What was just displayed through the waters of baptism this morning? It all begins with the goodness of God. God is your creator, He made you to know Him and to love Him. But when sin entered the world through Adam, all of us are born into this world with a sin nature and we rebel against the king of the universe in our thoughts, our actions, our words. We try to make ourselves king of our lives. And we've experienced God's goodness through his gracious gifts and his patient warnings time and time again, but we have disregarded both. But God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, we deserve death because of our sins, and we cannot pay that penalty. And so Jesus entered the vineyard, and he took our penalty on the cross. He died in your place so that if you believe in him and repent of your sins, you can have your sins wiped away. In his confrontation of these religious leaders, Jesus points to the grand plan of salvation. And in those last verses, 10 and 11, we find ourselves at the point of decision. Jesus quotes Psalm 118. And says, The stone that the builders rejected have become the chief cornerstone. And as he's saying that to the religious leaders, there's one disciple in particular particular, who I believe was listening very, very carefully. And it was Peter. Because we find Peter quoting this same passage two other times in Scripture, calling people to to the point of of decision. Will you embrace Jesus as the cornerstone? Or will you reject Him? The first passage we see Peter repeat this same verse that Jesus says is in Acts chapter 4. Turn there, if you will, Acts chapter 4. By this point, in Acts chapter 4, Jesus had died, and he had risen again from the dead, and he had ascended to heaven. Salvation had been accomplished. And now his disciples are going out and spreading the message, and one of those disciples is Peter. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had just healed a crippled man by the power of Jesus, and they are both arrested. And guess who they stand before? They stand before the Sanhedrin. The same group who had condemned Jesus to death. The same group who had asked Jesus in Mark chapter 11, by what authority do you do these things? If you're in Acts chapter 4, look in verse 7. They asked Peter and John almost the same question. By what power or by what name did you do this? Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today because concerning a good deed alone to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by by which we must be saved. And Peter quotes to the Sanhedrin the same verse that Jesus had quoted to the Sanhedrin and tells them to their face that Jesus was that stone that you rejected and killed. And now he has become the cornerstone. And now, there is salvation in no one else there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved we see peter quoting this verse yet again in the letter that he wrote in 1 peter chapter 2 1 peter chapter 2 and yet again we see this moment of decision 1 peter chapter 2 Verse 4, Peter writes this As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. Jesus died for your sins and for mine. And now there is salvation in no one else. And because of what Jesus did, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the Bible calls to us and says, what is your decision? 1 Peter 2 lays it out. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. But those who do not believe in Him Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Will you reject the free gift of salvation through the death of Jesus Christ? Will you reject Him and face the consequences of your own sin? Or will you come to Him humbly, laying your own works at His feet, your own effort, your own pride at His feet, and say, Jesus, I cannot earn salvation, I cannot save myself. It is only through the death of your Son that I can come to salvation. God is so good, and He has shown His goodness to you. And you know what that goodness is meant to do? It is meant to bring you to repentance. And yet we rebel against His rule and message. But God sent His one and only Son, God in flesh, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, how do we respond to a message like this? Once again, I'll let the Apostle Peter answer that. In Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, his sermon at Pentecost, where once again he confronts those who had killed Jesus. And we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through this parable, this murder in the garden, Jesus sets forth to the religious leaders, the ones who would kill him, the grand plan of salvation. He shows them his goodness. He shows them their sin. He shows them his son. And then he calls us to respond. Will he be the cornerstone? Or will he be the stone rejected by men? What will you do with the message of the gospel? We gather as a church, like I said at the beginning, not to boast in our own works, not to say that we somehow are better because we figured it out and we found the Gospel. No, we're here because God found us. Because Jesus came to us and died on a cross for our sins so that we not, not try to earn our way to salvation or, or outdo our bad deeds with our good deeds, but to come and throw ourselves before the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ who came to die and pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And the Bible is clear. That whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you call on the name of the Lord today? Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would speak to hearts Lord, that through even the testimony of baptism this morning and the testimony and message of Your Word, that if there's anyone here who has not placed their faith in Christ, who is holding out, who is rejecting Your patient warnings and Your gracious goodness, You would bring them by Your Spirit to the point where they are ready to place their faith and trust in You alone. For those of us who have already placed our faith in Christ, I pray, Lord, you would never allow us to get over the great gift of the gospel. That it would never become old news, but that we would rejoice in it and live in its reality.